Well, tonight, and also in your booklet, by the way, there's a, a slight misprint. Uh, uh, the session number five it was actually session number one, which we had already completed and in your booklet. So uh, this evening, I believe, we're going to be talking about denominations. And uh, so that is labeled number four. Uh, but the time afterwards is, again, we have a Q&A time. You're welcome to take that index card and write a question on it, and you can give it to me, or we'll also have a public time when you can ask a question into the mic. We'll be recording the Q&A time as well. Well, we uh, are very, very grateful uh, for the ministry of... Uh, the Bible Answer Man and uh, Hank Hanegraaff and the Christian Research Institute. Uh, they have done a marvelous and wonderful work in uh, counter uh, cult, counter false teaching uh, articles. You can go to their website at equip.org. I've gone there many times over the years to find out answers to questions that I've had regarding an aberrant teaching or something that I've heard uh, or a question that I may have had. I've been told I should have said what was the question that I called Hank on the radio for uh, about 20 years ago when I called in. He and John MacArthur were answering questions, and the question I had asked was um, exactly what happened uh, when Christ was on the cross and he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he himself is a member of the Trinity, what was the intertrinitarian relationship that was broken and for how long was it broken? So we'll see if he still has the same answer as he gave me 20 years ago. And uh, that was the question I asked. And after I was off uh, the radio, this man named Art, the brother of Mr. Nakamura over here, called me from California and said, Joe, were you on the radio? You're the only Joe I know in Seattle. So I said, yes, I was. So without further ado, let's give a warm welcome to Hank Hanegraaff. Okay, I think we have power. I've titled the message tonight, In Essentials Unity, Non-Essentials Liberty, and In All Things Charity. Of course, the subject matter does deal with denominations. Because denominations oftentimes are incorrectly castigated in that so often the world looks in and says there are so many quote-unquote religions within Christianity because there are so many denominations. But that in essence is not true. Denominations by and large are separated based on secondary issues. Now, to say that they're separated based on secondary issues is not to say that the issues are unimportant. Nor should my remarks be taken to mean that there are not denominations who have given up on essential Christian doctrine. If you look at much of the liberal as well as liberalism within denominations, you find a complete abandonment of the essentials of the historic Christian faith. The incarnation, the resurrection, the Bible as an authority, And on and on it goes. So, the topic at hand is a very significant topic. And it is one with which I have wrestled a great deal as president of the Christian Research Institute. And I'll bring that story out a little bit later. But let's pause for just a moment and uh, ask the Lord's blessing. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to speak. As I do, it is not by might nor by power but by your Spirit. Lord, I pray that you will once again use this time for your glory and for the extension of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
The two passages that I thought of this afternoon for this message, I think sum up the essence of where Paul was instructing Timothy. Command and teach these things. Do not let anyone look down at you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them. Because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. And Paul specifically identifies if you do what? If you persevere in both life and doctrine. And I want to underscore that for just a moment as we get started. Because doctrine without life can cause you very easily to become a Pharisee. Life without doctrine leads to all kinds of wackiness. We need both. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. For if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And Paul did not say this without passion. Remember when he said in 2 Timothy... In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will come to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and understanding. For the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they gather around themselves a great number of teachers to tell them what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to mythology. Now, Paul said that with passion. Remember, for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you night and day with tears. He was concerned about false teachers masquerading as teachers of enlightenment. They were distorting truth. The message tonight is focused on, in essentials, unity. Essentials are the line of demarcation between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the cults. There has to be Unity when it comes to essential Christian doctrine. Otherwise, there is no gospel to proclaim. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. Which is to say, we can debate secondary issues vigorously. But we should never divide over those issues. Nor should we ever become divisive or haughty. When it comes to those issues, we must in meekness and reverence learn from one another. And I have learned over the years that no matter how much I study, and I have been a lifelong learner, I am continually learning from others. Sometimes others that are half my age, quarter my age, sometimes from kids, sometimes from... People who are outside the faith and learning something. Sometimes it's about life. But we can learn from one another. It takes a great deal of humility to learn from others. And it takes ultimately being willing to listen attentively. So we shouldn't have a haughty attitude. We should do what we do in terms of the secondary issues, in terms of the essential issues, with gentleness and with respect. But the point with secondary issues, again, is this. Debate vigorously. Don't divide. Don't be divisive. So in essentials, there must be unity. Non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. 
Which is to say, I can have discussions, and some of you may have heard me have discussions with Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, even rank atheists. But we have to have charity. We have to reach as opposed to repel. In Essentials Unity, what are the essentials? I actually did a 4 by 6 laminated, memorable flip chart. I took the essentials of the Christian faith and I codified them around the acronym DOCTRINE. These are the essential doctrines for which the martyrs shed their blood. This is the North Star by which the church has set its course. This is the very foundation of the gospel itself. So what are the essentials of the historic Christian faith? Again, I've codified them around the word doctrine, and I want to go through that with rapid fire in interest of time, but I do want to hit on those essentials so that we understand what it is that we stand for in a unified fashion. The first essential of the historic Christian faith, indeed I think this is the mother of all issues, is the deity of Jesus Christ. The mother of all questions was this question, who do you say that I am? So the D in doctrine actually represents the deity of Jesus Christ. Peter said, you are Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Peter was blessed for his comments. For he had correctly ascertained who Jesus Christ is. And as Christians, we must never compromise the deity of Jesus Christ. He is the one who spoke and the universe leapt into existence. He is the creator of all things. The Bible clearly declares that Jesus Christ is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus now is forever in flesh. He is the Anthropus, the God-man. He is one person with two natures, 100% divine, 100% human. In the Incarnation, He did not divest Himself of a single attribute of deity. He voluntarily veiled the prerogatives of divinity, but he was not divested of one of them. Jesus Christ was 100% God, 100% man, and so it always will be. When Jesus ascended into heaven, it wasn't as though he started going up and he's still traveling at the speed of light and he's not even at the outer edge of one of our little galaxy yet and there are 100 billion galaxies with 100 billion stars Jesus Christ as the God-man transcended time and space it's as though there's a veil between this world and the next and one day that veil will be removed and Jesus will appear a second time so he is as close to you as he was to the disciples. Jesus, as the God-man, transcended time and space. The point here is simply that Jesus declared that he was God. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen God. No one comes to the Father but by me. The Bible likewise declares that Jesus Christ is God. Read John 1, Hebrews 1, Peter 1, 1 Peter 1. Read Revelation chapter 1. Jesus Christ is declared to be God by Scripture itself. Not only so, but the credentials of Christ manifest His divinity. Not the least of which is His sinlessness. The Muslims declare that Jesus Christ is sinless. But they ask Muhammad to seek forgiveness for sin. Jesus manifested the credential of sinlessness. Who can accuse me of being guilty of sin? Who can say that by God? 
and no one could speak a word. Jesus had the power over death and disease. Jesus Christ, by his credentials, demonstrated that he had power over nature. So the Bible declares that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ himself declares emphatically that he is God. In fact, the antagonist did not miss for a moment what he was saying. Therefore, they took up stones to kill him. Why are you trying to kill me? Because you, a mere man, they said, claim to be God. And the credentials of Christ ratify his divinity. So the deity of Jesus Christ is at the center of what we believe when it comes to essential Christian doctrine. The O represents the doctrine of original sin. This is an essential of the historic Christian faith. Adam and Eve fell into lives of perpetual sin, terminated by death, and all of us have followed in their trail. So we're born and conceived in sin, subject to all manner of miseries, yea, to condemnation itself. We're born in sin because we're born in the first Adam. We are born again because we are birthed anew through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So we have a choice either to remain in the first Adam or to be restored in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. The C represents canon. Canon means rule or measuring rod. And when I speak of the canon, I'm speaking about 66 love letters etched in heavenly handwriting. I didn't have time to go into this in the first session. I can only skirt past it in this one, but the Bible is demonstrably divine as opposed to merely human in origin. We know that these are the words of God via the manuscript evidence. The manuscripts we have are copious. In other words, we have upwards of almost 6,000 manuscripts in the original languages in terms of the New Testament, uh, predominantly Greek, and a sea of other copies in other languages. But we have over 6,000 copies alone. And by those copies, we can get back to the autographs. And what's very interesting is that the copies are written in close proximity to the autographs, and the autographs or the originals are written in very close proximity to the people, places, and particulars that they chronicle. So there's no time whatsoever for legendary contamination. Not only so, but with virtually every turn of the archaeologist's spade, we have more and more evidence that what is found in soil corresponds to that which is found in Scripture. And we don't have to go all that far back in time to hear the critics suggest that the Bible is communicating falsely when it comes to even people groups. All you have to do is go back to the Enlightenment. And people were saying the Bible is incorrect because the Bible communicates a people group called the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are mythological. No evidence whatsoever. For 2,400 years, 600 years before Christ and 1,800 years after, Assyria and its chief city, Nineveh, were buried in the dustbin of history. Thought to be mythological. And then Layard, the great Assyriologist, and Indiana Jones, if there ever was one, began digging along the Tigris River and dug up Nineveh, diamond of the Assyrian Empire, embedded in the Golden Ark, midway between the Mediterranean and the Caspian Seas. And he found Ashurbanipal's temple to the north, and Sennacherib's temple to the south, and Ishtar's cultic temple in between. And bit by bit, the people, places, and particulars chronicled, in this case, with respect to 
the Assyrians and the interaction of the Assyrians who took down the northern kingdom, by the way, this is no small thing, proved to be correct. Now, we should never take something like this for granted because the archaeologists have been also digging in Mesoamerica and they have discovered that the Book of Mormon does not correspond to reality. That the Lamanites and Nephites and Jaredites are pure mythology. Anthropology and archaeology has utterly devastated the credibility of the Book of Mormon. If this was true with the Bible, game over, the faith not valid. But archaeology demonstrates in spades, if you will, that the Bible is rooted in history and evidence. In my book, Has God Spoken?, I lay out the archaeological evidence sequentially. It is powerful. But not only do we have manuscript evidence, archaeological evidence, but we have predictive prophecy in Scripture that can never be pawned off on good guessing, luck. The kinds of prophecies we find in Scripture are stunning. Think about the prophecies just with respect to Jesus Christ alone. His ancestry foretold before his birth. He had to be of the seed of Abraham. And via not Abraham's first son, but his second son. And not Isaac's first son, but second son. And not Joseph's first son. And not even his favorite son, but his fourth son. He had to be of the tribe of Judah. I should say Judas. He had to be of the tribe of Judah. And ultimately, through the lineage of David. Were he not... His antagonist, as he walked this earth, would have said, you're a Benjamite, you're a Levite, you're disqualified. The ancestry of Jesus Christ foretold in minute detail before Jesus was born. The place of his birth foretold. Bethlehem. And not just any Bethlehem, but Bethlehem Ephrata. Not Bethlehem in the Zebulonite territory. Had Jesus been born in any other town or hamlet on earth, he would have been disqualified as Messiah. The circumstances surrounding his death foretold. Clusters of prophecy in the constellation of prophecy. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53 and the like. The date of his visitation foretold within historically narrow time parameters. He had to be an extraordinary worker of miracles. Now, so often when we say extraordinary worker of miracles, we, we fail to recognize what that means. Because we use miracle in common parlance all the time. You find a key and you go, oh, that's a miracle. Uh, you have another child. And you watch the birth of that child. And every time I've watched the birth of one of my children, I've cried. And say, that's a miracle. Well, it's really not a miracle. It's the natural ordering of things. It is a miracle in one sense, but it's not a miracle in the sense of an extraordinary worker of miracles. One who could raise the dead and take blind eyes and give them sight. Allow the deaf to hear again. He had to be a worker of extraordinary miracles. And it was not enough for him to be a parochial messiah. He had to reach out so that the gospel could go out to the Gentiles. Not only so, but he had to fulfill all the law and the prophets. Remember Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the commandments. I came to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will disappear from the law until everything has been fulfilled. Jesus was the only one that could emerge through the doorway of Old Testament prophecies. Look at Daniel. 
Daniel was able to predict what was going to happen 400 years hence with Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, his desecration of the temple, his untimely death, freedom for the Jews under Judas Maccabeus. 400 years prior to the events, he was able to foretell a succession of nations culminating in the Syrian beast. Jesus was able to predict that the temple would fall. Jesus was able to give us the ultimate prophecy. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. And the temple he spoke of was the temple of his body. The Bible is replete with prophecy. Again, you cannot punt it off to luck, good guessing, or even common sense. The kind of prophecy that the Bible is replete with you do not find in any other religious work. The only thing you find in the Quran is Muhammad's self-fulfilling prophecy, I will return to Mecca. Far different than the types of prophecies I just now enunciated. So the Bible is demonstrably divine as opposed to merely human in origin. And we do not determine the Bible. We only discover the Bible based on the principles of canonicity. So it's not as though men met in a smoky room, historical winners determining which books were in and which books were out. No, the Bible was determined by God and only discovered by men based on the principles of canonicity. This is an important point, one that I do not have time to elucidate, but let me simply say this, that there are many people in academia today that are saying that the Gospel of John is a false gospel, written pseudonymously. That the Gospel of Judas is far more credible than the Gospel of John. In fact, there are some now who are writing bestsellers like Bart Ehrman, chair of the Religious Studies Department, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who's made a cottage industry of saying that the Bible is full of deception and that had we accepted into the canon the Gospel of Judas instead of the Gospel of John, we would not have experienced anti-Semitism in history. Now, we buy this kind of thing because it is what politicians give us, rhetoric. But it's not based on reason. I remember one day in my office, I've uh, worked with the same guy for 22 years, so we're pretty familiar with one another. And one day we took the Gospel of Judas, just for the fun of it, and read it out loud. And we were literally in stitches. It is silly and sets itself apart in terms of discreditation without a word. Thirteen papyrus pages, very short, obviously Gnostic, incoherent, so different from the marvelous majesty of the Gospel of John. So we do not determine that the Gospel of Judas is out, the Gospel of John is in, we simply discover what God has determined based on the principles of canonicity. And again, canon means rule or measure. So there's a standard by which we discover what God has determined. The T, Trinity. If there's one question I've been asked about more on the Bible Answer Man broadcast than any others, it is the Trinity. I get asked about this all the time. Sometimes it's a Mormon calling, sometimes it's a Muslim calling, sometimes it's a Jehovah's Witness calling, sometimes it's a Garden Friday pagan. But the Trinity is constantly being questioned. The Trinity to the Muslim ultimately determines an unforgivable sin called the unforgivable sin of shirk, S-H-I-R-K. I was just in Iran speaking at the uh, University of Tehran, 
and then Alama Tibetaba, their sociology university. And, and this was one of the things that they brought up. What about believing in three gods? And what about the absurdity of saying there's one god and there's three gods? And so what they did was they produced the caricature of the Trinity. And the question is, when people do that today, do we have a ready response? Because the Mormons do that, the Muslims do that, Jehovah's Witnesses do that. People of all stripes do that. How can you believe in one God and three gods? Isn't that an obvious contradiction? We need to be ready with an answer. What does the Bible actually teach? Well, the Bible teaches that there's one what and three who's. If the Bible taught that there was one God and three gods, obvious contradiction couldn't accept it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. There's one what and three who's. There's one God by nature or essence, three in person. Now, can I comprehend that? No. I can only apprehend that. If it were a contradiction, I wouldn't bow my knee before Scripture. But again... Why should a finite person be able to comprehend an infinite God? So what does the Trinity really say? The Trinity says there's one God revealed in three persons. The Bible says there's one God in that the Jews were fiercely monotheistic and the New Testament Christians were as well. The Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So as Christians, we are fiercely monotheistic. I remember doing Larry King a number of years ago, and he asked me, so wasn't Christianity a cult? And I said, yeah, absolutely it is. It's a cult of Judaism. So you can use the word cult in various ways. We're fiercely monotheistic, very much like the Jews were. We're part of the Judeo-Christian tradition. But that one God is revealed in three persons. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. The Bible teaches that the Father is God. The Bible teaches that the Son is God. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is God. And the Bible further teaches that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternally distinct. Which is to say, we can never say with the oneness people that the Father becomes the Son. And the Son becomes the Holy Spirit, like actors behind a stage coming out in different costumes. We believe in one God revealed in three persons who are eternally distinct. No contradiction, but also a failure to be able to fully comprehend. And again, that should not bother any one of us because we are finite. God is infinite. We will spend an eternity... Seeking to understand the nature of the God who saved us by his grace. Just as we will forever explore God's created handiwork, we likewise will explore the creator. And we will never come to an end of exhausting the riches of his nature. Remember that even in eternity, although we will learn and grow and develop without error... We will never be omniscience. Humanity cannot bear the burden of omniscience. The Muslims, the Jehovah's Witness, the Mormons, they all deny this. They all caricature this. We should understand how to give an answer, a reason for the hope that lies within us with respect to the nature of God. Trinity is not a non-essential It's an essential of the historic Christian faith. And all cults compromise, confuse, or contradict the nature of God in one way or another. The resurrection, which I spoke of this morning, is crucial for us to grasp as well. Not just in terms of historical evidence, as I talked about earlier today, but in terms of its impact for you and I. Remember that Christianity grew up in the epicenter of a Caesar cult. If you were to say, I am a Christian, it meant death. Or it meant being defamed. Or it meant persecution. You were required to say, Caesar is Lord. And believers were baptized. And they said, Christ is Lord. 
And as a result of that, many of them were dragged away into hippodromes and torn apart by wild beasts or lit ablaze with tar jackets. And yet, history tells us that they died with songs on their lips. What in the world could motivate someone to willingly die for the notion that Jesus Christ is God? Only the resurrection can account for that. They had seen Christ rise and they knew of a certainty that they too would rise. So they lived their lives, not to be politically correct or popular or prosperous, they lived their lives with eternity in mind. I'm going to leave this at this stage with only one more comment. And that is, were we to grasp in our epoch of time the reality of resurrection, we would live our lives by an entirely different standard. And that is true both for the laity and the clergy. It is for people in ministry like myself and people who are in ministry but they're not in full-time paid ministry. Because there is an insidious, seductive opportunity day by day to cash in on your popularity by being politically correct. You constantly have to wonder, not just wonder, but exhort yourself with that question, am I living with eternity in mind or am I living for mean earthly vanities? I'm always struck by the rich man and Lazarus. I'll probably talk about that before the week is over. It is a terrifying paradigm seeing a rich man dressed in fine linen and a beggar laying by his gate has to walk by that beggar all the time and suddenly this huge paradigm shift takes place they both die and the rich man he has all the pomp and circumstance of a funeral the Bible doesn't tell us the detail but you kind of get it because Lazarus was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom there was no burial probably his body just discarded a rich man, you can imagine the eulogies. But when they died, one woke up in torment, the other in bliss. That is real. If Christ is real, that is real for each one of us. Do not labor for that which perishes. Labor for that which is eternal. I'll leave it at that. The incarnation... The Incarnation, again, as I mentioned earlier on today, the Christian worldview presupposes the supernatural. The universe itself demands a supernatural explanation. So we as Christians have no problem whatsoever with the Incarnation. If God can speak and the universe leaps into existence, ex nihilo, If that's true, we should have no problem whatsoever for God taking on physical form for Jesus coming in flesh. No problem whatsoever. Remember that we are created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. So we already have the non-communicable attributes of God as part of our nature. We don't have the incommunicable attributes of God. We'll never be omniscient. We'll never be omnipresent. We are finite. God is infinite. But we do bear the Imago Dei, the image of God, and it seems completely consistent for God to become a man. But it is supernatural nonetheless. And we believe it because the Bible says it. And we can demonstrate that the Bible is divine 
as opposed to merely human in origin. So again, it's not blind faith, it's faith and evidence. The N in the acronym doctrine reminds us of new creation. Paul said this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I can't remember where that's... I think that's 2 Corinthians 5.17. Is that right? Um, But if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so the whole notion of new creation is an essential of the Christian faith. When we are born again, when we are born from above... We are new creations in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. I've been in China many times over the last few years, and some of the most moving experiences I've ever had in my life. In fact, the first time I went to China, I came back and I literally wondered if I was a Christian. I'd spent time with the persecuted church. And I saw people who literally gave it all away for the cause of Christ and spent years and years in prison without an ounce of self-pity. And I remember asking an older man, he was 86 years old, he'd been in prison four different times for a total of 24 years. And I asked him, how did you endure? Because prison there is not easy. I've gotten a taste of what it is because I've spent time there even with the communist government. It's not easy. And when you get out of prison, you lose a lot of the opportunities you had before. And you know, I remember this 86-year-old man, Mr. Bai. He said to me, well, I died. I no longer live. Christ lives now. An example of a man who had literally understood what it meant to live the crucified life. And coming back to America, to my creature comforts, I wondered, wow, am I even a Christian? Could I do that? Could I live the crucified life? It... It took me, from a personal standpoint, from talking about truth mattering to life and truth mattering. The starting to grapple as a little minnow in a big pond, starting to grapple with what it means to live the crucified life. Not to talk about it, not to theorize about it, but what it really means. To live the crucified life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The E in the acronym doctrine, and this may surprise you, but bear with me for a moment, is the word eschatology, or if you will, end times. The point here, I think, is a salient point as we transition from essentials to non-essentials. Eschatology is an essential. It also has non-essential aspects. It is essential as believers to know and hold to the fact that Jesus will appear a second time. And that when he does... He will put all things to right. So the creeds communicate the essential of eschatology. You know, all of the Bible is eschatological. Adam and Eve fall into lies of perpetual sin, terminated by death. The rest of the Bible is God's unfolding plan of redemption, culminating in a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Paradise lost becomes paradise restored. As John says, God himself will be with us. We will be his people and he will be our God. We await paradise lost becoming paradise restored. What happens to us in resurrection goes hand in hand with what happens to this universe. When Jesus appears the second time, the universe now, as Paul says in Romans 8, groans in travail, awaiting its liberation from bondage to decay. 
this universe will be restored. God doesn't scrap things. He redeems them. In your resurrected body, you're not going to be altogether other. You're going to be restored. The DNA that makes you you is the DNA that will make you you for all eternity. But that DNA will flower in a pristine universe without disease, decay, destruction, or death. Now, when I say that, it does not mean that every atom is resuscitated in resurrection. It means that there's continuity between the body that is and the body that will be. Very much like what happens in metamorphosis with a butterfly. A caterpillar, an eating machine, crawls along on a leaf, could never think of flying, then weaves its own chrysalis, which is an essential, in essence a, a, a casket. And there its constituent parts devolve into a mysterious molecular mixture. And out of that wonder of wonders comes a butterfly. Completely different digestive system. Now got Rogoskis to indulge the nectar of life. Wings can fly. It's the same physically, but different organizationally. So what we will be like, I cannot tell you. Where the Bible's silent, I cannot shout. But that it will be glorious, I can tell you. That there is continuity between the body that is and the body that will be, I can tell you because Paul tells you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, using all kinds of examples to drive home the point. So we know that we will rise immortal, imperishable, incorruptible. We know that Jesus will appear a second time. There are essential elements to eschatology, but there are also non-essential elements to eschatology, and therein we move from doctrine to denomination. There are denominations that are divided on ecclesiology or church order. There are denominations that are divided on eschatology. There's no doubt a wide divergence of opinion within this room on eschatology. The meaning of the millennium, the timing of the tribulation. These are secondary issues. We can debate them vigorously. We ultimately do not have to divide over them. I remember for 20 years in the Bible Answer Man broadcast. Well, not 20, I'm sorry. For 20 years of my ministry, but almost 15 years in the Bible Answer Man broadcast, people would ask me questions about eschatology. And I'd say, here's the various views. I'm not qualified to talk about it. All the while studying the subject. And I think therein lies an instructive moment, and that is... We need to continue learning and studying to show ourselves approved workmen who need not blush with embarrassment rightly dividing the word of truth and recognizing that we can learn from one another. I have learned from so many people when it comes to eschatological paradigms. And though I differ with many of the people I learn from at this stage, I still respect them. I still revere their ministries. And I'm still very thankful for them. So an essentials unity, non-essentials liberty, and eschatology is a non-essential. But there are many other non-essentials that divide denominations. I think about the charismatic, non-charismatic debate, or the Pentecostal, non-Pentecostal debate. Although I'm not a Pentecostal, Pentecostalism is within the pale of orthodoxy. Now, during this conference, I'm going to be talking to you about the Word of Faith movement when we talk about sickness and suffering and wealth and want. Many people within the Word of Faith movement as teachers have crossed the line of demarcation from the kingdom of Christ into the kingdom of cults, denying the essentials of the historic Christian faith. But Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement proper are still within the pale of orthodoxy, so we can debate those issues vigorously, perpetuity of spiritual gifts and so forth, whether tongues is the evidence or a evidence. These are issues we can debate vigorously. We ultimately do not have to divide over. I came to this 
understanding experientially uh, with a group called the local church. Um, when I became president of the Christian Research Institute, I inherited a wealth of information and uh, one of the groups we spoke of when people asked us questions were the local church, or sometimes it's called the Lord's Recovery, and uh, ultimately it's the progeny of uh, Watchman Nee, who died in a communist prison camp. He was uh, in prison in 1952, he was formally sentenced in 1956, and he died in 1972. He wrote the book, um, having a senior moment, he wrote the book, uh, The Normal Christian Life. Uh, which has affected people worldwide. He actually never wrote the book himself. Um, that book came out of a series of lectures that he did in Scandinavia. Uh, a man named Angus Kinnear took those lectures and form it, formulated them into a book and became a major bestseller worldwide. Watchman Nee likely never knew about that book. But while he was in prison thinking, my ministry is over, the branch grew over the wall and affected not only all kinds of people in the Orient, but all kinds of people in the West. I was in a congressman's office uh, not long ago, told me that he was impacted, perhaps more than any single other reading impacted by the normal Christian life. But anyway, I, we thought uh, this group was occult or cultic, and, uh, and so I had inherited this information, and well, the leaders of uh, this group, although they're essentially a leaderless group, uh, came to, to, to meet with me and asked if they could uh, talk to me. And they testified that what we perceived with respect to their group was simply wrong. Uh, our, our basic understanding of this group was that they were modalistic, that they uh, were non-Trinitarian, uh, that they were exclusivistic, that they thought they were the only church. They said, no, we don't believe we're the only church. We believe we're only the church. Uh, they believed, uh, at least from our perspective, that they could become God, just as God is. But they explained, no, we don't believe that. Uh, we believe that we are deified in the same sense that Peter talks about deification. Well, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing, when you hear someone saying it, to either decide you're going to take them at face value... Uh, and then did the primary research you're supposed to do. Well, we did that. Um, we started a six-year primary research project, which took us all over the world, literally, and eventually caused us to devote an entire journal, which is our award-winning magazine, uh, to this subject. And the three words on the cover were this, we were wrong. I found that where I disagree with them on many secondary issues, on the essentials of the historic Christian faith, we stand shoulder to shoulder. So when I speak about an essentials unity, non-essentials liberty, and all things charity, I'm not only speaking academically, but I'm speaking experientially. And I now count many of the people within that move of the Holy Spirit as dear brothers and sisters. But that takes being willing to say you are wrong and not being galvanized in your position simply because you held that position before. Also takes being willing to take whatever fallout comes as a result of it. Because if we live with eternity in mind, temporary things like this, which may be insignificant to us, have a huge significance for eternity. And I found personally how many families, I mean literally thousands of families, no hyperbole, literally thousands of families have come to me and said they had been healed because of what we did in saying we were wrong because the parents thought the kids were in a cult and on and on it went. So there were divided families that were united. So this is not a meaningless talk. And again, it's not just academic. It really has significance in essentials, unity, non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. So we've gone from doctrine to denominations to the third D that I want to touch on just briefly as we close the session and go into questions and answers, and that is does. Being wise as serpents gentle as doves. 
So when I think of in all things charity, I think of doves. Wise as serpents, gentle as doves. Do I think Mormonism is a cult? Absolutely. Uh, I've done several pieces on Mormonism. I've done a tremendous amount of research on Mormonism. And in my view, Mormonism is a cult. But even in saying that, it has to be said properly. Because cult is a very inflammatory term. In fact, without qualification, it's a term that shouldn't be used. In other words, to rephrase, that term can only be used with proper qualification because it is a media-driven, sensationalistic term. When you say cult, what's the first thing you think of? Jim Jones, people drinking Kool-Aid, or the Heaven's Gate cults. Um, You think of a cult from a sociological perspective. When we talk about Mormonism, we're not talking about a cult from a sociological perspective. We're talking about a cult from a theological perspective. In other words, they claim to be Christian, but they deny the essentials of the historic Christian faith. They use our language, but they pour their meanings into the words. So if you ask Mitt Romney, uh, are you a Christian? Yes. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes. The question isn't, does he believe in Jesus Christ? The question is, who is Jesus Christ? So we have to learn to scale the language barrier, but in doing so, do it with gentleness and with respect. They have a different Jesus, a different gospel, and there is no sense in which that different Jesus and that different gospel can be harmonized with the essentials of the historic Christian faith. But in dealing with Mormons, we have to do so with gentleness and with respect, seeking to reach as opposed to repel. I've had many conversations, and I'm sure many of you have heard some of those conversations on the radio with Mormons. And I seek not only to answer questions or to engage in dialogue, but to model behavior, gentle, patient, Thinking the best, not the worst. Not sensationalism, not sophistry. Gentleness. Gentle as a dove. Patient. So that we might reach. I can say that Mormonism is a cult from a theological perspective. From a sociological perspective, I love what Mormonism represents. In taking care of other people. I love what Mitt Romney has done. And again, this is not a political talk. I'm simply taking something that's prominent in the news and commenting on it. I love the fact that he has been engaged doing what we should be doing as Christians and what I understand this church does. And that is, genuinely demonstrates the oneness of Christ. You know, that's one of the things that really motivated Pagans to look seriously at Christianity. You know what they'd say? See how they love one another. And the love of Christ constrained them to come. They saw the reality of the Christian faith. When someone went out to help another one who was in need, when the body was knit together, all too often in churches, you know, we kind of show up and we disperse. We're like, Marbles bouncing off of one another in an empty cathedral. The early church was knit together in love. They cared for one another. They demonstrated the reality of the Christian faith. And the love of Christ constrained others to come. So there's a lot we can learn from what Mormons do in taking care of each other. And there's a lot we can commend. So even in talking about Mormonism... We need to do it with gentleness and with respect, not trying to paint the worst of all pictures, but giving them the benefit of the doubt and recognizing that they're but for the grace of God. 
go I. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Know what you believe. Know why you believe what you believe. Know who you believe. In secondary issues, be humble. Debate, but don't have an exalted view. You can learn a lot from the least of these. And in all things charity, which means that we can uh, hang out with prostitutes and sinners, as our Lord did, and uh, reach them with our life and our love, and if necessary, with our lips. Let's close this part of the session and we'll go to question and answers. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to think together. And Lord, again, I do pray that in ways I do not yet comprehend and may never comprehend this side of eternity, you will use this time for your glory and for the extension of your kingdom. Again, we pray not by might nor by power, but by your spirit. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.